think it would be good to maybe just say that why <laughs> we're just doing we 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 decided to record it is because I was asking you a lot of questions and you're like I can't this is too many questions this is such a long email let's just have a call about it and I thought that most of the questions I have got from my friends or anyone who wanna make a documentary or if someone is really passionate about something which generally lasts like few months but still <laughs> they're really passionate and they want to like, I want to make a documentary or a video about it so how do I go about it and sometimes they are really successful and then they're like okay now I'm you know looking for funding and and this is why I actually wanted to ask you because you must have had this journey from just knowing pretty much nothing about the industry in 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 some way or form because not training probably to be someone who want to make a documentary. So we'll come back to that, but I want to maybe start from early on your story where you left your PhD, if I'm correct. So it would, I'm really interested to know about what was going on. What was the research you were doing before uh, you made the documentary about rights human rights, other kind of abuses which is going on in corporate world. What were you interested in and how did like how did you leave the PhD and you're like, oh I'm gonna make a documentary? Well I was in the PhD program for three years and I was looking at the rise of sweatshops providing outsourcing services to global brands because I had worked before I started the program at MIT I'd worked as an outsourcing agent for companies just starting to do business in China and had done that for several years and had been increasingly alarmed by what I saw as the transition from public ownership of the manufacturing sector in China to privatization and the rise of individually owned factories uh, with foreign investors, for example. It used to be that all the factories were owned by the uh, Chinese various agencies um, who were involved in exports. But then over time, under pressure uh, from various economists, etc., saying that the public sector is very inefficient and it's uh, much better for industrial growth, looking at the examples of Taiwan, South Korea, Singapore, et cetera, that um, the sector should be uh, privatized and turned over to foreign investors and people who uh, would individually own the factories, entrepreneurs, et cetera. You mentioned sweatshops. Could you a little bit more expand on that? Well, when I was working in the factories with uh, factory managers during the era that was still called collectivization, and public ownership. The factories had at least 50% women managers and were really run on very, at least in the uh, apparel and uh, consumer products facilities where I was, they were just run on um, very strict adherence to labor laws and the uh, structures in place regarding rules and regulations. As soon as foreign investment came in, and um, individual owned factories were allowed to be established, started to be a lot of uh, fires in the factories, lots of people were dying, uh, child labor 
started entering the factories because cheap labor became the objective of factory ownership. And Chinese government made it more or less clear that they were not going to be enforcing the labor laws and cracking down on these factories because they wanted rapid growth at any cost, you know very clear. We're not going to look at the environment. We're not going to look at labor laws. We're just going to get as much investment as we can. Hand over fist. We want to catch up to the West in 10 years. Um, and that was, you know, very uh, clearly articulated um, strategy. And so the rise of sweatshops basically came in with the rise of smaller firms and privatization and foreign investment. So these are the places like we do. Why do we call them just because of the grinding aspect of this place and lack of any regard to the basic human conditions where so you are actually sweating? Is that why the name was given? Yeah, I think it's uh, going back to the early 20th century when uh, Industrial Revolution, um, you know, picked up steam and then the factories were basically running 24 seven. Hmm. And so people are in there, you know, cramped quarters, not good ventilation, not enough, um, you know, natural light and yeah, literally working and sweating and not being able to leave their workstation until the work is done. I mean, that's what fast fashion basically means is, um, it's fast because it has to be made quickly by the small factories that are working on these small orders for delivery on a 30-day basis. And that was certainly what I saw in Italy when I started doing uh, research um, that ended up being complicit and we didn't end up using the research from Italy. But um, it was just amazing to go into a Chinese community outside of Florence and interview workers who you know, talked about their colleagues collapsing and dying right next to them from having worked 36 hours straight. Because after about 18 hours, people are at risk for a heart attack of mm -hmm. nonstop work. Um, the, this is the film uh, I saw a few years ago, uh, Good Times from Charlie Chaplin. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, it does feel like, you know, I was horrified after watching it because it tells you that how people are grinding into the actual he showed coils of machinery through that system and is it's an amazing film so if anyone hasn't seen it i would highly recommend it and yeah. <laughs> it's great i think it's called modern times oh sorry modern times yeah you're right <laughs> i i i you know it's it's because i i envision him to be so um ironic <laughs> that it felt like that yeah I, no yeah modern times sorry uh so yeah, it has a cool song also, which is such a nonsense song, but it's, it's, it, 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 the words doesn't mean anything. So even if you don't want to watch it for like some, any educational or political factor, it's a really entertaining films anyway. Stood the test yeah. of time. Oh yes. Uh, I was a little skeptical when my partner, she was like, oh, you should definitely see it. When I saw it, I was like, oh my goodness, this is amazing. Like, sometimes you're like, yeah, this movie must be great, you know, when it was made. But now I can see it. it's like, it's, yeah, it's okay. But no, that was really made an impact. But anything around those kind of topics where you see 
people getting really trapped into any kind of large scale systems and particularly linked to globalization, which is extremely powerful. I mean, we most of the most of the people who are maybe trapped in these kind of systems would be struggling to survive and to cover like three, four basic needs. So they they don't like it's very hard when I like when I go to Pakistan, let's say, or, or when I'm when I was in India, um, or or any South Asian countries. It's very hard to even talk about it because this is a overview which when you are trapped in a system which is just basic needs uh, and and then on the top of it it's this huge system which even people who are not trapped in that cannot actually really address how and such such a big leviathan type of problem it horrifies me and that kind of film showed me something like that but the, the funny part is that that's actually just happening still isn't i mean that's what you're working on right now it's just not it's not that visible uh, and it's more complicated probably and it has some sort of a whale uh, but it's it's really there like he made the film in 40s if i'm correct i think it was just before world war 2 um but yeah that that, that that you see a film and you're like oh my goodness that that thing of the past you know not not really yeah it's really never left us it's just been exported basically and same with uh, upton sinclair's the jungle things that are happening today or things that he wrote about in that book in the meatpacking industry um, in the Chicago area decades ago. And not that much has changed. I mean, the, the labor is still largely immigrant, but the industry has left the Rust Belt cities of the north uh, where it previously was located that had a lot of unionization and those jobs in Chicago and Detroit. And now it's all out in uh, Colorado and uh, the Western states where there's immigration coming in from uh, Central America to work in the factories, and those uh, workers have very little protection. I mean, we even saw during COVID how they were disproportionately hit with uh, COVID cases and deaths because of the irresponsibility of management and the weakening of the labor unions to the point where they weren't really able to have much of an influence in trying to protect people. So things have not changed as much as we might have um, expected that they would. They've just remained hidden. And as long as they're hidden, and as long as consumers aren't aware about what's happening, um, management's going to continue to make the most of it. Yeah. Okay. So, so you're doing your PhD research on sweatshops and all these dynamics. What happened? How did you decide it to then move on and leave this, please? Uh, well, a couple things happened. One was structural, which was that my advisor uh, decided to leave the department I was in and transfer to another department, and it wasn't going to be practical for me to follow him because I was going to have to take the courses and do the general exams in that department. Uh, so I decided that I was going to leave with my master's. And right at the same time, I had um, led a seminar where I had been pretty shocked that the students were so um, pro-business 
that they were trying to make all sorts of justifications for why sweatshops are a good thing. And we can see uh, in the writings of you know, some fairly prominent economists who also try to argue that sweatshops are necessary uh, evil on the path to industrialization and higher GDP. And my perspective on that is, well, I understand that it's important to create a manufacturing sector. But what I was finding in the factories and what was of concern to me was that the factories are breaking the laws. They're breaking their own laws and standards. They're going against their own cultural norms in many cases, depending upon what the uh, socioeconomic dynamics are in the factories. And they're profiting from that. And then by attracting global brands to place their orders in those factories overseas, hidden, uh, then the brands are profiting from a system of illegal exploitation. If the workers were actually getting paid for every hour worked, which is according to the laws of the country, and if they were getting compensated for their overtime, then they actually would be on a path to a living wage and a trajectory out of poverty, which is ultimately the goal. But they're actually trapped by being um, employed in these factories, which are systematically denying them up to 30% um, of their lawful wages. You know, the wage theft issue is actually huge in terms of the impact that it's having on people's ability to work out of poverty. And I don't think it's helpful for Western economists to say that sweatshops are a necessary evil because what they're basically endorsing is an illegal model and an unethical model of production that is exploiting workers and large corporations are able to earn, you know, record profits as a result of working conditions that would never be allowed in the US, Europe, Canada, or Australia. Perfect. So, uh, so you then, you, so you were like, okay, so, um, so how did you find out or, or how did you actually got inspired to then they make a documentary or, or what was the next step when you left the PhD? Oh, okay, so I decided to leave the PhD and start a nonprofit to put pressure on companies to be more accountable for the working conditions in their overseas factories. And there was an evolution over um, a period of a couple of years from the brand saying, we don't own the factories, so therefore we're not responsible for the working conditions. We have no control. But then the Student Against Sweatshops movement started, and they sent a very strong message to Nike, The Gap, and other U.S. companies that as long as their label is on the product, consumers were going to hold them responsible for the working conditions in the factories. And the, and the brands very quickly changed their position and said, okay, we're going to start monitoring, we're going to start paying attention to this, but let us handle it. Don't bring in trade unions or NGOs, civil society organizations to shine the spotlight. We want to handle this ourselves. So there's been that tension and that friction ever since, basically, that they recognize that they have a risk in terms of their public reputation. And, you know, periodically there are um, exposés about problems still happening in these factories. But um, they're still not fixing the problems to the point where we don't have to worry about the exploitation and the um, health and safety 
challenges. And people are still dying in these factories all the time. So then, so okay, after nonprofit, what what? Uh, after the of... nonprofit, yeah, I did. I ran the nonprofit for ten years, and then worked as a freelance consultant also on the issues. So I've been working on the same issue for more than fifteen years, basically, which is looking at sweatshops, looking at globalization, trying to create mechanisms for corporate accountability uh, to become more rigorous and transparent. And that resulted in my going to China to research a book in 2013. And the research for the first chapter of the book was so mind-blowing and um, of concern in terms of what my colleague and I were finding that we decided to make a documentary film to tell the story of what we were finding so we could get a global campaign started to raise awareness and pull in all the different NGOs that are looking at similar issues to try to um, elevate the issue and uh, create some change. Did you did you saw um, one, two, three things which you, you know, suddenly they really convinced you or inspired you to, okay, so there is, we have to make a documentary about it. Or was it that you were researching over time and then once you looked at the results, you were like, okay, so we have to present it in a very different way. No, we kept, it was really the human factor. We kept meeting amazing people on the ground in hospitals and living in the um, communities around the hospitals who either had been poisoned in the factories or whose relatives had been poisoned and they had moved close by so that they could get their medical treatment. Um, and these stories were so resonant in terms of feeling like this is a very serious global issue. The supply chains of the electronics devices all come to a head in the Pearl River Delta and these few cities in southern China. And these hospitals are filling up with workers who are getting poisoned or who are getting injured by faulty machinery. And we're actually meeting the people who are making our phones and our iPads, mm -hmm. etc. And their stories are so moving. We've got to get the word out, and we want people to actually have a opportunity to see them, you know, face to face on film for the first time and hear their stories, to be moved and then mm. to be outraged, yes. so that they'll want to do something. And I didn't feel writing an article or a chapter in a book was going to provoke the same kind of reaction as having close up you know, visual imagery and uh, photography and music and, you know, a whole immersive experience so that people would feel like they're actually there for the first time and seeing something that they wouldn't feel comfortable about. So now we come to the point, okay, so you you said 2013, that, that so you decided in 2013, that's a long time. Uh, to, so how one how one moves into this documentary space once you decide or once anyone decide and so it would be really useful if you can um, tell your experience uh, that if someone else you know have same idea how do you move into the space and how do we actually do fundraising and uh, 
what is the dynamic of fundraising and then starting a documentary? Please, the, the, I mean, however you want to uh, take the question. Uh, well, as a first time filmmaker, you deal with a lot of challenges in terms of persuading people that you're likely to finish a film and that they can <laughs> write a check for the project yeah. and join the movement to try to get this film done because completing a film is a lengthy process and it takes a, it totally takes a village in terms of the number of people involved but you could actually make a video with a lot fewer resources now because we have so many amazing uh, you know technical tools at our disposal now so if we make a commitment to learn how to do as much of it as possible. Um, you can create a short video that then you use to persuade funders that they should support the larger project to getting the film done. Um, but also today, in terms of documentary, a film does not have to be a, you know, a complete 90 minute or two hour endeavor anymore, because we have so many different ways of uh, gathering information, of getting our information. What we did was take the first 50000 uh, that I was able to raise from going to a conference and made a powerful 10-minute trailer and used that as the basis for the media campaign against Apple and drawing in funders from all over Europe and the UK to support the project. It was really hard to get funders in the US and what I would say to aspiring filmmakers about that is that if you're gonna be taking on a major powerful institution in local society, the ability to raise funds from organizations that might have a financial relationship or some kind of partnership with um, that entity is going to be a little, you know, it's going to be a little bit uh, more complicated, and you may have to develop a multi-tiered funding strategy to find folks who are completely independent. Because we found um, with our critiques of Apple that in the U.S. we weren't able to get major funders, we weren't able to get broadcast deals, we were not able to get into a lot of film festivals that have iTunes relationships and other kinds of deals with Apple because Apple is a, a media conglomerate. Um, but there are still parts of the world where that's not the case with funders and with the film festivals. So we basically had our successful run outside of the U.S. and we're just now getting ready to go up on the platforms um, in North America later in um, 2021. So, uh, well, by the way, this podcast will, podcast will go on uh, uh, iTunes, <laughs> hopefully. Hopefully. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, 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 yeah, I doubted that uh, there is any kind of system at this point, an AI system, which could actually monitor the amount of conversations there are uh, on their podcasts. So yeah, that, that's ironic. But uh, so this is this is uh, kind of similar uh, in a way that um, yeah, the filmmakers 
who are actually you know trying to just be directors full time they make a short film so that they can get funding for the feature film what are, so the conferences this is actually, i think it's very interesting to know that uh, whether the conferences are the human rights type of conferences or are they the conferences which are more about documentaries and and what is the overlap between this space because documentaries are generally used as a way to show certain issues and most of the issues are human issues and and i mean even if even if the issue is to do with agriculture land uh, you know any other kind of animal right issues so there's some way or form humans are involved in it so i think this space is pretty much overlapping a lot like because most of documentaries are around these topics but what have you seen in like in this overlap so this is one question the other one is that what what do you what would you suggest on the con like if someone wants to go to the conference and do present it what is more effective or what you found more useful well i thought it was uh, very helpful to be able to get a place on a conference agenda to show a five minute film because we had about five minutes of good footage after shooting for four months in china and i knew there was going to be this event coming up um later in the spring so i said okay we've just you know got to have five minutes of really great footage of what the project is so far and i will get on the conference agenda and hopefully be able to raise some money in the room or from the people that i communicate with you know during the course of um staying at the conference for three days i mean sometimes i've seen filmmakers come in and their film is being shown at a conference like i mean there's so many different topics that conferences are covering that now are hosting a documentary as part as a session you know is it, you know in the middle of the day or maybe during a break or in the evening they'll actually have a movie now um, and often the uh, filmmaker will come in and they basically just stay for the purpose of their session but they don't stay for the whole conference and if they don't negotiate the opportunity to stay at the conference for free and have access to all the events because the conference doesn't necessarily offer that when a filmmaker just you know requests that they get their film for a session but if you can make the um, argument that because normally they're not paying you for showing the film anyway uh, that is part of their in-kind contribution that you should be able to stay at the conference you can make a lot of um, introductions and meet people, folks who might have viewed your film or that you talk to and encourage them to come to your film. It's a really important way to network because often the people that are at that event are working in the space that the documentary is addressing. You know, they're not going to have a documentary about food security, for example, at a conference on occupational illness. So for um, complicit right now, this is you know, 2021 now, the film came out in uh, 2017, but I'm still connecting with people in uh, various trade associations and conferences and folks who, now that everything's on, online, you know, we're having meetings and offering them to do a, uh, a community watch event or a screening of the film and then we have a Q&A afterwards. 
So that's a, a great way to meet funders in the early stages as well, uh, when you only have a small amount of footage. I haven't really seen much success where people are uh, pitching an idea for a documentary, but they don't actually have some footage to show hmm. yet. It's really important to always have some kind of a work product so people can understand what you're talking about and where the project might be going. Yeah, because uh, it does make sense that if people are interested in the topic and they can see it visually, that something what they are working on would be supported. Uh, and, and, and it makes it easier for, of course, funding, but also it actually might be something more important as you start making documentary because someone needs to like the most important thing is that the, the whole point you're making a documentary is that you want to spread it. And so whatever connections you are making are going to be useful. So these are document, these are the conferences, which now it is more clear. And before I was a little uh, bit in, in two minds that would that be the conferences for maybe actually where the art artistic side of the people would be there. And it's, it's more interdisciplinary um conferences which is about the techniques of you know making films and like film but but i think that makes sense because that would be film festivals rather than the conferences so film festivals and those folks generally aren't there from the higher echelons of the industry that the film might be addressing and so they may not have the ability to write a check or uh, envision a potential partnership with this film going forward. I mean, for me, it was absolutely key that I was able to engage with a few different nonprofits who provided support in various ways. Like one uh, underwrote all the expenses of a media campaign, so we got over 300 articles written about the trailer when it went up online. And then there was another group that was an investment group that filed a shareholder resolution against Apple using the footage and the cases that we had developed from our trailer. And so being able to create those partnerships and synergies, even if it doesn't result in a check, but people actually spending money to do other things that are in alignment with their mission and that they feel um, is you know, a good win-win um, can be really key. For example, I'd never worked professionally on a campaign that involved social media and had no idea how to make a trailer go viral, for example. <laughs> but I had a former uh, client who I'd worked with who had moved into the social media space. And so he said, well, let me give you a few contacts and I'll connect you with some folks who really know how to um, reach hundreds of thousands of people through social media. And maybe they'll give you some free consulting on the project because it's a worthy project. And again, that's also very helpful. If you're working on a project when it's clear that it actually has some connection to people by the millions around the world, like all of us you know, own phones and we're connected <laughs> to all these digital devices, people can resonate and you know, feel connection to the issue. And yeah. so it was very easy to get um, people to volunteer their time and donate their time um, to give us 
their expertise without having to pay them for it because of course you have no budget for that <laughs> yeah so so you have trailer and then you have festivals and then you have conferences and then ngos and some sort of a social media hopefully someone someone you know uh, someone sees potential in what you're doing uh, it actually you while i'm talking to you it's actually helping me to see if the topic is something around what we are talking about right now especially which concerns a lot of human beings or even um well documentary is going to be seen by human beings but uh, still if the topic is connected to more a lot of people trans um, border uh, topic it's like contemporary art so where where the uh, Where, where, where this is not like I'm so fixated about actually trying to create something that I'm when I'm doing it I'm very much interested in the artistic aspect of the project itself and then I'll deal with a lot of other things or I will partner with some other things but I can see that the that the vision or the mindset of making a documentary has a slight tint towards the contemporary art where just a quick example i was working on another project which is called wetland life and it's like an interdisciplinary um, project where there are artists uh, and economists and you know um uh, 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 social researchers and uh, a lot of other um uh, uh, I forgot the name actually the the, the it was about m- mosquitoes and um uh, birds and wetlands um the, forgot the word because it's a very interest it's a very pretty hard word to say about the uh, people who are expert on insects uh oh entomologists <laughs> entomologists yes <laughs> thank you thank you so they they were uh, actually talking about uh, the the contemporary artists were telling that um they wanted to do this project about these uh, wood uh, forests uh, and and the old trees and the, the these were protected trees and the problem was that once something is protected it's really hard for humans to engage with it so it's either on or off and they were saying that they wanted to do some artistic project around it and they started you know coming to this place and how we want to engage and how something is protected but still humans are engaging with it and one of my colleagues who is a social researcher wanted to know that what would the art project would be you know so what are you, is it going to be like a sculpture or is it going to be like a model like what and he says that six months passed nothing happened and then i realized that oh it's not going to be anything this is the art like the engaging part of actually making people come and talk and be part of the space and doing things is what the actual art is there's not going to be one picture in a gallery and i can see that you <laughs> are are as you're making documentary it's actually the point of what you want to do it's not just about creating that one small piece of material which is swift and really slick with beautiful music and nice cinematic shots the whole point 
is that it actually is Im- impactful and it does reaches a lot of people. And seeing that if uh, someone being frustrated by not trying, by not being able to complete the project, can see that there are ways to actually do what you wanted to do, even through a th- trailer. I mean as you are saying that just the trailer is achieving quite a lot and of course now you have finished it and so now you are another and another journey and uh, um so tell me after i mean what what were the challenges uh, so you got some funding and now we are making the documentary and you are making this in china um what are the challenges how did you got the footage what were people because um how hard it is to say for someone who is working in the factory that oh i'm being poisoned and then risk having no job security or even some sort of repercussions yeah the, the risks that the workers take are immense and in a place like china where the government works with factory management to try to suppress any information that is negative or which would reflect negatively on the factory or on uh, situations in chinese society in general you know vis-a-vis the government's ability to protect the people or the government's ability to protect the interests of businesses and foreign investment all of that stuff the government does not want any kind of negative information getting out there so the workers already are taking a risk just in going to management and saying i got poisoned or uh communicating with the factory from the hospital because they might not even have a chance to talk to management before they get carried out of their dorm rooms to the hospital because they collapsed I mean, a lot of the uh, symptoms for N-hexane poisoning, which is um, used to basically just wipe down and clean up the components as they make their way through the uh, assembly process, uh, is paralysis or even going into a coma. Um, so it's not like the workers in every case take their situation to management and have a sit down with them. I mean, a lot of times it might even have to come through third parties because these workers have already been taken to the hospital um, from home or from the dormitories. Uh, so that's a big challenge um, in terms of what the workers are experiencing. And they don't have a lot of information because it's not like in the West where we can just go online and find out all of our rights and protections. And then there are public agencies that we can go to to advocate on our behalf. The Chinese government has been systematically shutting down and harassing the activists and the NGOs that were trying to help the workers. When we arrived in China and started doing the filming in 2013, over 12 groups um, had already been shut down in the area that were there to help workers. So we uh, would reach out to those NGOs and go visit them in their homes. Because once you're really impassioned and working 
for a cause, trying to help others in your community, just because the government tells you your office is being shut down doesn't necessarily mean you're going to stop doing the work and your connections to people are no longer there. I mean, it's, it takes, I think, a rare person to just walk away from all of that, which is what the government is, hope, is hoping will happen as a result of shutting down these organizations. But we found people in their homes who, you know, hosted us and talked to us about um, the advocacy work they were continuing to do. And then they would get evicted from their apartments uh, when the government would find out that they were basically still running these operations. Not because they knew about us. We always were successful about staying below the radar and the authorities never knew that we were uh, making our film, fortunately. But we had experience also. My uh, videographer colleague and I had both worked below the radar for years um, in China. So we were not sticking out like sore thumbs as foreigners walking around with video equipment. You know, we never, you know, we never had cameras basically set up on the street except only in situations where it looked like we were filming very innocuous, um, friendly scenes, you know, boats on the river at night, uh, families doing their thing out on the boardwalk on weekend afternoons, that sort of thing. And that all, you know, went into B-roll and kind of backstory, you know, to enhance the, um, the stories that we were telling. But there are a lot of um, challenges in the local environment as a documentary filmmaker that's important to assess and um, plan for because you don't want anybody to be placed at risk because, you know, we can always fly home. But um, in an environment where you're dealing with a dictatorship or an authoritarian government or local official uh, local officials who are going to be hostile um, to journalists, yeah, it's important to really plan everything very carefully so you're not risking people who are already taking, um, you know, some very courageous steps in talking with you, sharing what they have experienced. And then you uh, are asking them for the documentation um, that substantiates their claims because in making a documentary, if you're going to be out there uh, telling a story to the world about people who've been harmed by corporate power, corporations are always there with their lawyers um, ready to try to rebut or undermine uh, the story you're telling unless you have the documentation and the evidence behind it. How did you find when, when you were doing it that do people um, are building some sort of um, strong momentum or force? I mean, not, not in any uh, actual uh, organizational way, but just inside of them. Do you think that this, because it's such a big nation, do you think uh, through your experience that there might be some sort of a result which won't be um, like this? This is this is going somewhere where there would be some sort of a clash of some sort. I'd like to think that that was possible, but I think that the rise of the digital surveillance state in China has made the government extremely powerful and part of its power is now its ability to prevent organizations and groups of people from mobilizing for any type of real collective action and that's why I feel it's important for us in the West who are 
intricately connected to workers in China because we're the ones buying all of the devices and the products that they're making. To figure out ways that we can be supportive of their efforts. For example, right now, Hong Kong is basically fighting for its life um, against the ever encroaching uh, tentacles of the Chinese government, which are really strangling um, freedoms of democratic uh, governance in the country. Yeah. There's a lot that's been happening in Hong Kong over the last year and a half. But what are we in the West? What are we in the West doing about it to try to help people actually have a chance of winning? Um, there's a lot we could be doing. For sure. I mean, the yeah. Well, I. I Start with the boycott. <laughs> there's not been one organized boycott yet. Um, yeah. Again, you know, I, it's happening in Hong Kong, Tibet, and now in Xinjiang with the uh, Uyghur genocide and the modern slavery allegations. We're just now starting to see some movement in um, parliaments and U.S. Congress, etc. But uh, individuals could also be organi organizing movement as well. Yeah, it's it's a. I I think most of the time before internet things were really hard you never know what's going on in most of the places and you have your own problems although now it there is an opportunity for people like us to do something about it we were trying but yeah the 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 other aspect of that is too much information and that has created its own silos that even here if you talk about these topics it is okay to have different perspective because that's what we all would have but like fundamentally i've seen that it's it's such a big divide even here in west uh, about some topics which seems very clear uh at, at, at a at some level but even you know at that level where you have different perspective but you understand that you know i get it that this is the point where we all disagree and just to have a right to disagree around one layer but still understand that okay a a type of genocide or or a technocratic kind of control over a whole country probably be very dangerous so what should we do about it I think even that is not really part of conversation. Even uh, there's one interesting thing when you were saying was coming in in my mind. Um, there are two people, uh, George or Orwell and Aldous Huxley, um, who predicted certain futures, and everyone um, was very serious when George Orwell talked about the surveillance government and and that got much more um, I think reception over the decades than Aldous Huxley's Brave New World which is about how people would hedonistically would be completely trapped uh, to these self-fulfillment prophecies and that didn't you know wasn't i think i think what would we what we see now is that the reason why it we we are not 
fully trapped with what George Orwell was saying, invest, it's because we definitely took that really, really seriously. And what Aldous Huxley was saying, it was a little too abstract and the technology wasn't there. We didn't really know what would it be like and the brain neurology wasn't there. So no one really f knew if, you know, both of them would come back. It would be crazy, like, to see that we actually, if we tell George Orwell, no, no, we actually love having mobile phone in our pocket. No, no, we want it. Like, we like cameras all around us. We own these things. Like, it's not even controlled by anyone. And and that's that's kind of a future which was told by Aldous Huxley, and we d didn't know about it. And we are now finding out what social media is. And we're like, oh, my God, we are in that reality which he was talking about. And I think it's good to, the reason why I brought this up was to, to say that this is kind of what is going on in China or about to happen in China, which we were horrified about to would happen in West or other Asian countries of like surveillance technocratic society, because how much of a deeper this problem is or do you do you think does it even relate to what i'm saying in some way or form to like orwellian kind of projection of the world i think it definitely does i think that we're seeing with the rise of ai for example and china's desire to be a dominant player in the growing AI industry. The potential for all those things that Huxley and Orwell wrote about to come about. I, th I think it's unfortunate that they seem to kind of seed the ideas and now that the technology is available, these guys are running with it and as, th as though they have no other imagination. I mean, <laughs> those are just two guys, Orwell and Huxley. They've, you know, they created a vision for the future. That doesn't mean it has to be our our future, our vision. Let's come up with some new ideas and, you know, imagination and creativity about what to do with these technologies. It shouldn't be only that we're going to be create, creating some kind of dystopic, unlivable planet for ourselves because some sci-fi writers, um, you know, sitting in their rooms back before any of this stuff was even possible, came up with the darkest vision they could to sell a few short stories or novels. Um, but I'd like to point out that uh, the difference between Huxley and Orwell, I think, in terms of how the world is um, kind of assimilated their uh, warnings and their uh, visions for what might possibly come about is that Orwell, I think, was in a much better position to be influential. And I think his ideas have been uh, more universally influential because he was also a journalist. And so he had a type of credibility um, because of the uh, writing that he did, the nonfiction space that he occupied as a, as a credible um, expert and writer on a number of different topics, that he was able to have much more influence, I think, than Huxley, who was a novelist, because then it re requires that people actually read his books and understand his books to really um, be able to uh, kind of assimilate what he was saying and decide if you agree with it or not. Whereas with Orwell, you know, he had so many other platforms 
um, that he'd been able to establish uh, for his voice, that I think ultimately his voice has been a lot um, more powerful over the decades. I mean, I think that when we're talking about the future and the uh, rise of the surveillance state and the challenges to privacy, Orwell comes up a lot more often than Huxley does. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I think, well, this is why, uh, um, this, again, this is what I'm thinking, looking at uh, what Huxley was writing. Uh, you So to the point about the future, actually, the, the I think George Orwell has been very, very successful uh, in a way that the uh, I'm, I forgot. I, I I'm not sure if it is. Uh, I think it was Huxley or Orwell. One of those people. Someone asked them, or maybe it's someone else uh, asked them that, why are you writing one after another dystopian stories? Like, why why would you uh, like flood these things? You know, flood our market with this. And he was like, the only reason why is because do you think that this is how the world would be and uh, he he said no exactly this is the opposite of it because i do want to write all of these things as a warning so we never go to that place and i think orwell did it because orwell as you were saying was more influential we did avoid that a lot and in asia it's not part of rhetoric or literature at all and and i do think that the things which are not part of you know your language they sneak up on you and that's what happened with huxley's one i mean many people say that oh huxley's one yeah is too fantastic but not really this is exactly because it was under the radar so it all of these social media things kind of snuck up where everything looks clean that's what his world is everything looks brilliant it's clean and it's appear and that's the thing uh um uh, not not dystopian but every 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 utopia i've i've not not even a single utopia i've seen does you really look closely it always looks like a dystopia but from from the outside everyone loves this definition of some sort of odd balance when this control still there's a there's a level of control at an at an algorithm level and I've seen people with that personality type. They love clean sorting algorithm kind of society where everything is really well. And I think that this is one of the things you can see that our iPhones and pads and our cars and our clothes and our houses over here are brilliant. Um, but our mental health and uh, how everything else around this bubble is struggling is exactly what he projected. I mean, if he, if, if we make a film about our society and we can show what, what's going on in mental health and the biggest reason why we actually got uh, psychedelics finally uh, out of, you know, um, schedule three, because there was like no, like no way to cure tons and tons of PTSD and depression and suicidal issues. It's, it's one of the signs that how internally the thing is, you know, weak. And I think this is, I feel like this is one of the things which is for West is so hard 
because they you know we are it's like it's they're struggling in another way and i do when i came here from pakistan and i i was i was slowly it's been seven and a half years now and i've been slowly understanding it it's exactly how it is it it from an outside it looks brilliant of course and it is in many ways but then there are other problems and these are the problems now we are finding out through all of our social media issues and other overproduction issues um but i i do want to like um ask you about that um, do you think that because of the combination of you know let's say west having their hidden you know you, you, like a, a utopia which actually is dystopia in some way or form because it's insanely overgrown towards one aspect of um our skills and also it is extremely i think it's really really hard to just agree upon the most basic value at this point i mean as you were saying in china i don't i just this is why it's such a like the 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 problem is much more deeper than it appears because you, when the person on the other side is very sure that this is definitely not the way to live as in yeah sweatshirts and ai and um surveillance society this is definitely fine and they truly believe it in their heart in some way or form then i think that then the problem is so much more bigger than we imagined because if we say oh yeah they're doing wrong and you know like in our society let's say or in some places someone is doing wrong you know you need to like understand catch them in markets someone is doing wrong but if the two aspects of markets are so separated that the one market completely agrees and really definitely promotes the parasitic behavior i mean how do you how do you ad- address it like this kind of a problem and and maybe well, we need to have transparency that's why i think it's important to have um laws and rules for uh corporations so that individuals and uh society actually understands the realities of the business proposition and the supply chain and who's who's winning and who's losing um because you know one of the things that complicit basically is telling a story is about how lives are being destroyed as this new lifestyle and this new way of communication is being delivered to us and then we leave it up to the audience to decide whether they're okay with that or not or whether we want to make a change i mean occupy wall street actually did ignite and capture the imagination and the support of millions of people around the world because finally there was a grassroots movement that allowed people the opportunity in their own communities to just get out there and join with like-minded folks to say we want things to be a little different we want things to change um so i think that the um there's always going to be the debate between you know business is all good technology is all good or uh you know other issues that you know defect uh, affect us in society you know very deeply 
But it's important to have the information and then let people decide for themselves. And they need to have accurate information, which is why all the PR and the advertising and the subterfuge on the part of um, corporations is not helpful because people aren't getting the full picture. They're just getting the beautiful sanitized version of this is a win-win for everybody. We're all benefiting when in fact it's just the, you know, one or two percent at the top winner take all reality. It feels like that because you have seen a lot from very up close in China. Um, I, I, I agree with you that this is actually one of the best strategies to tell the story um, in as honest way as possible. And then everyone can decide because from this statement, I do feel that... Um, the challenge of such a surveillance state is very dire and it's a very serious issue than most of the people actually do imagine because it 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 is affecting ex on, on many many different levels that whatever injustice or whatever kind of tyranny is going on cannot be addressed address um either by people or, or it makes it, it even makes it harder for West to or, or any other countries to actually do something about it. Is that something which on a like when you're thinking about this and you have seen so much of it, you you, you know, you sometimes have a bit of a sleepless night because this is a I mean, if, if I think about it, I do feel and that's why I just talked about it. <laughs> for five minutes because it does whenever I've thought about it it does feel like that these things sneak up uh, and and it has in the past and these are the patterns and it's a very hard problem to solve when you mix AI and technology in it now well fortunately I wasn't having to look at uh, AI in the course of making complicit and I mean, in the uh, documentary film world, they tell you you should just have one issue that the film is addressing and it needs to be very focused, needs to have a very clear message in terms of uh, how it's presented and what the audience understands about it and then what the takeaway message is going to be. Um, you know, the difference between an activist film, for example, and a piece of journalism uh, might be that the activist film actually tells you what they want you to do at the end. You know, there's the screen at the, uh, you know, <laughs> yes. final scenes yeah, saying yeah. what you can do, which campaigns to support or where you can go online to learn more about it, um, to try to create an actual movement and bring communities together. Um, whereas in a, uh, a journalistic work, a work, for example, that you want to be considered for uh, a prestigious film festival uh, needs to be a little bit more nuanced in terms of how it leaves the audience and is not leading them or guiding them to a particular uh, perspective by the end and uh, list of bullet points, actions that they can take because that's not really how uh, journalism operates. You know, there's now a debate within journalism because people are saying 
don't just leave us hanging. We want to know what we can do about it. I don't want to walk around depressed all day and having a sleepless night because now I know about an issue, but I don't know what I can do about it. Um, but for us making complicit, I decided that with the advice of editors and people who were, you know, more experienced since this was our first film, that it's really important for people to know what they should ask for, for change, if they were going to reach out to the companies whose products they're buying, because they're going to say, okay, what brands can I get? And how can I tell Apple or Samsung that I want them to do better? So basically we decided that stop poisoning workers <laughs> was, a very, was a very simple message that they could understand and they wouldn't be able to have much pushback on because they can't then try to discredit um, the messenger because always the first thing they might want to do is undermine the credibility of the messenger. But if you're saying, okay, workers are getting poisoned, we need to stop poisoning workers, eliminate these two chemicals, that's a pretty straightforward ask. And then we considered it a win when Apple agreed to ban those two chemicals um, after the pressure brought about by our trailer. Yeah, that 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 does seems like that it's a it's a very simple approach. I'm I'm very aware of your time. Just to finish, um you do you uh, you mentioned when we were talking over an email about the discrepancy between the funding space and the NGOs and how this landscape is changing. It would be really good to know what you have noticed on that. Oh, I think it's uh, an interesting time of transition in terms of how NGOs and movement organizations are choosing to communicate with their constituencies uh, because it used to be by preparing pamphlets that people would read or uh, mailings that you would get that would actually come in the you know through the postage um, of impassioned letters telling stories about the work that was being done and the urgency of an appeal um, asking people to support um, by sending a check in you know that model is completely out the window at this point. So right now we're in a space where people are choosing to use videos a lot on their websites um, to tell a story of their uh, missions and the campaigns and the work that they're engaged in. But there's not a lot of funding that's been created to communicate in this new way that's a lot more expensive than preparing a report or a pamphlet um, or some other less expensive way that, I mean, nonprofits, they have a reputation of having really tight budgets and being able to work miracles on a shoestring and, you know, reach people and uh, change the world and build movements um, through the power of the pen, basically, uh, is what they relied on in previous decades. But now it's the power of film and visual imagery uh, that's being used to communicate with uh, movements and the grassroots and memberships. Um, but it costs a lot more money to do that. So the challenge of funding is filmmakers, in addition to being artists, wanting to tell a story in a, um, you know, a beautiful or a powerful way, also have to be able to figure out how to navigate the challenges of persuasion 
so that funders talk about too much information. I mean, funders are just overwhelmed with appeals and requests for funding and support. And it's really become a, a highly competitive space and one that, unless you're an expert with a track record, um, it's you know definitely a difficult road. And you have to wear a lot of hats and you have to build that village and as much expertise as you can bring into it as early in the project as possible to build a level of credibility with funders, uh, the more valuable it is. And yeah, and that's why you have mentioned really good uh, tips and shared your experience about how we can make this a little bit easier. So thanks a lot for that. Um, Heather, thanks a lot. Uh, this was great. I truly really enjoyed it and thanks a lot for doing it uh, it's it's a it's it's pretty hard work uh, i mean it's a it's a it's ugly ugly aspect of a lot of our um daily lives so I, i'm really glad that uh, you believe in a lot of people that they will see this message and hopefully uh, we would, we will get there and I, I'm totally, I'm, I'm optimistic about it as well. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Don't lose sleep over it. Just try to think <laughs> of various solutions yes. that you might be able to bring to reality. True. That's, that's the most important thing. Exactly. You know, there's a, I do say that a lot, but this is the Buddhist saying, which it says that tend to the part of garden, which you can touch. And that's where you start. And yeah. Thank you very much.